I don't know if Michael Talley is in the room, but I love when he gives announcements. In fact, I think we have no one awesomer. Uh, November, uh, besides being No Shave November, is also National Adoption Month, set aside to draw special attention to the value of adoption, both to adoptive parents and the adopted child. As I did some research this week, I found that adoptive parents and adopted uh, children actually do um, quite well, in some respects better than their counterparts. You see, the truth is it is a good thing to be adopted. And this month, set aside, uh, draws attention to the plight of children across our country and, frankly, around our world who are in dire situations, children who find themselves in some fashion uh, as orphans, street children living in poor and overcrowded orphanages and foster care programs. Consider the following statistics from a couple of our own governmental agencies. As of the end of 2013, which are the latest numbers available, there were just um, over 400,000 children in the United States in our foster care system. Of course, this does not count the countless not in the system. Of those over 400,000, only about 100,000, just over 100,000 are available for adoption because, you see, eventually you will, quote, age out, meaning you just get too old and you're never adopted. In fact, in the previous year, in 2012, over 23,000 children got too old aged out. Average wait for those who are adopted, three years. And by the way, our national numbers pale in comparison to the international numbers. The estimates are 153 million orphans worldwide due to the ravages of war, poverty, disease, and and famine. Many of these children live in those overcrowded orphanages or more likely on the streets, making them subject to abuse, neglect, disease, malnutrition, uh, and death. There are, however, some, some good numbers. In 2013, we as a country adopted over 50,000 children from the foster care System that, that's pretty good, and there are usually an equally, uh, an, excuse me, an equal number of private adoptions each year. Just over fifty thousand, for example, last year, uh, private adoption. That is, mothers voluntarily giving their newborns up to adoption through private adoption agencies, whether closed or open adoption, which, by the way, highlights the very important work of Hope Pregnancy Center uh, here in our um, community and what we're going to try and do for them in a couple of weeks. Uh, In 2013, the U.S. adopted about 7,000 international children. That's exciting. And and so the total, depending on which report you look at, and I I reviewed several of them, there are about 120,000 or so children adopted each year in the U.S., which is really, really cool until you stop to 
compare it to that 150, 153 million number. And I, and I know those are just statistics. You know, those are like numbers. But behind every number is a face. Uh, behind every number is a child. And one of the things that makes me so proud of this church, and I do mean Alliance, is the number of you who have taken children into your home, either through adoption or foster care. In fact, it is amazing the number of children from around the world that we have added to our families. Right here in Boone, North Carolina, we are becoming an international church, and, I, and, I am, and I'm proud of that. And I believe that, yeah, that's exciting. And, and I believe that it is also biblical. You see, James tells us this, pure and undefiled religion, and he's using that in a good sense, uh, in the sight of our God and Father is this. You want to know? You want to know what real religion is? Here it is, to visit orphans and widows in their distress. We're going to talk about widows in, in, in 1 Timothy chapter 5, but here's the point that I want you to catch this morning. If, if you don't catch anything else, write this down. God likes it when we take care of those who are unable to take care of themselves. God likes it when we take care of those who are unable to take care of themselves. He has always had a special place in His heart for those without parents and actually those without husbands. Psalm 68 says it this way, Sing to God, sing praises to His name, lift up a song for Him who rides through the deserts, whose name is the Lord, and exult before Him. Why? Why, why, do, we, why do we do that? Well, He goes on to give the reason. He is a father of the fatherless, and a judge for the widows is, the, is God in His holy habitation. Please notice, God Himself cares for those unable to care for themselves. He is a judge to widows. Yes, we'll talk about that eventually. God is a father to the fatherless. In other words, God is really into adoption. After all, He adopted you. And trust me when I say that you too were unable to care for yourself. And trust me when I say that you are much better off as a result of His choosing you. You understand, when we adopt, we make a choice. And we choose a child. In Ephesians chapter 1, Paul says, says it this way. Paul uses the word adoption. It's used five times in the New Testament, all by Paul. We're going to look at most of them this, this morning. But in Ephesians chapter 1, we read, In love, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself, according, here's why, according to the kind intention of His will. God chose you for adoption. That, that is the truth that we're going to spend our time looking at this morning. It's, it's the, the truth that we're going to look at as we uh, take a little aside to look at a passage in Galatians. Again, a little aside from our study in 1 Timothy, to do this, to celebrate and affirm adoption, the truth that God has a special place in His heart for adoption, the truth that He has a special place in His heart for those who cannot care for themselves, which means He has a special place in His heart for you because He adopted you. And He has set an example for us. Turn to Galatians chapter 4. Or you can follow along on the screen 
Let's read the first seven verses of the chapter together. Galatians 4 verse 1 says, Now I say, as long as the heir is a child, he does not differ at all from a slave, although he is owner of everything. He is under guardians and managers until the date set by the father. And so also we, while we were children, were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. But when the fullness of the time came, the Father, God, sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that He might redeem those who were under the law, that here, look at this, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Because you are sons, daughters, I might add, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. And then those of us who have added children to our home, no, no greater joy than to hear those words, Dad, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Let me, let me just kind of explain where we are in this particular book to, to set the, the stage for us because we're going to look at God's adopting us today. It's going to give me an example to remind us what God has done as we get ready to go to the table. And it's also going to serve as an example to the kind of people we need to be, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless as this, taking care of orphans and widows in their distress. Paul has been defending the doctrine in this book of, uh, of justification by grace through faith. <laughs> you see, that doctrine has always come under attack. There are a group of false teachers. This comes as a big shock to us, I'm sure. And they were called Judaizers who had arrived in the churches in, in, in Galatia, thrown the churches into a heretical uproar. Uh, how is a person s- saved? How is a person justified? How, how does a person get into the family of God anyway? This doctrine has always come under attack. In fact, two days ago, uh, you may have dressed up. I suppose if you did, I hope it was as a monk, because while many of us celebrate Halloween, we as Christians know it actually is Reformation Day. And Martin Luther and others at this particular time in history rescued justification by grace through faith from the false teachers of their day, and we always need to be defending it. You see, the Judaizers were saying, as many people today say, it, uh, that, that, that salvation is by what you do. They say, yeah, this faith in Jesus is a good thing, but also by circumcision, namely keeping the law of Moses. So this teaching was not only wrong, it was damnable. It was adding works of righteousness to grace as if we can add anything that we can do uh, to Christ's finished work on His cross. You see, adding anything to the cross perverts the gospel and makes it no gospel at all. Paul makes it clear. Listen to me this morning. Listen to me. No one has ever been justified, declared righteous by doing something good. If you are depending on your goodness today to get you into heaven, to make you acceptable to God, got really, really, really bad news for you, you are never going to make it. Rather, Some really good news is it takes the gracious work of the triune God in your life, including adoption. The very God of the universe waits to adopt you, and it takes His adoption to get you there. If God does not step in and take care of us as orphans, unable to do anything about our situation, we have no hope. We are in big trouble. 
leading up to chapter 4, Paul has just given uh, a number of Old Testament scriptures and examples to demonstrate that, that, that even under the law, uh, the, Mo, the law of Moses, a man has always been justified by faith. In fact, the law was never intended to justify anyone. So, so why then did God give the law? Well, it was added, he says, because of transgression. It was added because of sin. Namely, he wanted to do this. He wanted to identify our sin. He wanted to magnify our sin. And then he wanted to condemn us as sinners. You see, here's the truth. The law said, don't do this, and you did it anyway. And the law said, do this, and you didn't do it. We became transgressors. That is, we, we violated God's law. And if, if we looked at this book, we would, we would remember that the law does not suppress sin. In fact, the law provokes sin. And you only have to have children to know that's true. You only have to have children to tell them, don't do this, and that incites them to do so. But having provoked sin and condemned us, thankfully there's a fourth purpose of the law on the screen, and we see that the law then, having condemned us as sinners, it leads us to Christ, who alone can save. Well, Paul then gave two examples of this pur- these purposes of the law. Uh, it, it was our prison warden, he said. There you go. That's right. You were kept up in custody. You were in chains until faith came and was revealed through the finished work of Christ. It was a prison warden, and second, it was a pedagogue. And a pedagogue, in this particular context, meant it was a strict disciplinarian to discipline us in our sin and then to lead us to Christ. As a result, we are now children of God, having been clothed with the righteousness of Christ, having been adopted into His family. Moreover, he says we are unified. This is how he ends chapter 3. We are unified. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor freeman. There's neither male nor female, for we are all one in Christ. Listen, we are all Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise. This is incredibly good news. In fact, John Stott summarizes these first three chapters really, really, really well. He says, we have seen, if you read those first three chapters in Galatians, um, the, the Apostle Paul surveyed 2,000 years of Old Testament history. In particular, he showed the relation uh, between the three great figures of biblical history, namely Abraham, Moses, and, and Jesus. You've got to know those three. He explained first how God gave Abraham a promise to, to bless all the families of the earth through Abraham. Listen, through your posterity, through your descendants, Abraham, God's going to bless the world. The promise is coming. He then gave Moses a a law, which far from annulling the promise or replacing the promise, actually made, all it did was highlight the promise. It made the promise more necessary, in fact, more urgent. And and how the promise was then ultimately fulfilled in Jesus, so that everyone who, who the law drives to Christ inherits the promise which God made to Abraham. That's what you got when you were saved, if if you know Christ. Now, now, having mentioned the end of chapter 3, this <coughs> word heir, well, Paul's not done. He launches into another illustration of the purpose of the law and, and grace that was revealed to us through Christ. And let, let me just kind of give you the outline. We're just going to move very quickly um, through this passage. And, and, and I want to remind you, I'm going to just keep this before you, that w- the reason that we're doing this today is because this is National Adoption Month. And I, and I want to remind you that you were adopted. And I want to remind you that God has set an example for us to care for orphans and widows. The outline life under the law equal to slavery. 
Life under grace, which brings sonship. Let's start with life under the law, slavery um, to the law. As I jump into this, a good opportunity to remind us, the Bible is a historical and a cultural book, which means while it is absolutely God's Word, such that every word can be trusted, every word is inspired by God, it is nonetheless a book written in a historical and cultural context. And that requires that we study it within its context. I say that because of what appears in these first three verses. We have to try to understand what Paul meant, what the authors of Scripture meant. For example, when they refer to certain customs or manners or cultural practices within a certain text. In this passage, we have to understand the cultural practice of the day to understand what in the world Paul is talking about. He speaks of this heir who, while a child, does not differ at all from a slave. What does that mean? Even though he is the Lord or owner of everything. The inheritance is all his, whatever that means, by promise, but not yet by experience. And in fact, the child, is, uh, the child heir is under guardians or managers until a certain time, one set by the minor's father. Okay, what, I, what, is, what is he saying? Well... If you were a child of a well-to-do father in a a Greek or Roman um, household, until the age of 17 or 18, you would be appointed guardians and managers. Guardians would have oversight of the child. Managers would have oversight of the child's assets, all right? Now, you got to understand that the child might be rich. He is, after all, the heir heir of a vast inheritance or a vast estate. But while a minor, he is under the authority of the guardians and managers and really, really had no, no say. In, in fact, he really had no more rights or privileges than a slave. It's not unlike being a child today. You get told when to wake up, when to go to school, where to go to school, what to wear, how to behave, and when to go to bed. In other words, they were ordered about, they were, they were directed, they were disciplined and under this system. The child felt more like a slave than, than a son. But understand something, it was for their own good. What seemed like bondage was necessary to bring him to full maturity. He's treated as a minor until a certain date set by his father. This is, this is the cultural practice that Paul has in mind. This is the example that he's using. So also, verse 3. While we were children, we too were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. We need to remind ourselves that Paul is arguing that the law was added because of our sin, because of our transgressions of transgressing God's law, to highlight our sin and to drive us to Christ. And so while we were under the law, we were held in bondage to, quote, elemental things. What in the world is that? Well, the word refers to basic building blocks. We could say uh, the, the ABCs of, of something. A lot of discussion about what that means. I'm not going to go into all the arguments, but it seems that he's talking about the basic building blocks which led us to faith in Christ. He's trying to show us how the law was actually a basic building block to give us or, or to lead us to, to Christ. It's like elementary school that leads us to to graduation. In this case, graduation is faith in Christ. The law contained the basic ABCs, right? The basic ABCs of right and wrong, what to do, what not to do. And it was intended to keep us in custody, keep us in control until under the management of guardians until faith was revealed. 
And when faith is revealed, it is revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, you've got to understand, these guardians, or excuse me, these Judaizers showed up and said, hey, um, Jesus has showed up, faith has showed up, but we want to keep you in elementary school. We want to keep you tied to those managers and guardians. And Paul says, you can't do that. Paul, in this context, is saying the period of time, follow me right here, the period of time between the giving of the law to the time of Christ was that period of guardianship. This was the period of time when people were held in custody. That's what he's talking about. But I want you to understand that this truth of this passage still applies to us today. Because you see, when a person is born today, he or she is born with a sin nature predisposed to choose sin. And the truth is every person in this room has sinned quite well. And so the law comes along and still plays the role of identifying and magnifying our sin and condemning us as sinners. The law has told us, don't do this. Don't commit adultery. Don't lie. Don't bear false witness. Don't covet. Don't steal. All of those things. Don't take God's name in vain. Worship only Him. Gave us 10 commandments. And I can, if I had the time this morning, I could prove to you this, that you have broken every single one of you, have broken every single one of those commandments. All of them. You're a transgressor. Lawbreaker, condemned. See, there's a sense in which before we were, became Christians that we were still under the elementary principles of the law, complete with its condemning purposes. That is the purpose of the law. And then having exposed our sin, the law is supposed to drive us to Christ, which is Paul's second point, life under grace, full sonship with all of its privileges in verses 4 to 7. And this is where he reminds us that we have been adopted. Paul speaks of a time set by now the Father, the Heavenly Father. When the fullness of time came, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law. When the fullness of time came, refers again to this time set by the Father. It was the fullness of time, which speaks of the very perfect time. It was, it was the very perfect time for Jesus to come. He talked about this in Mark chapter 1. Now, after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent, it's time. Repent and believe the gospel. This was the perfect time. It was the high point of history. Jesus came at a perfect time in history determined by the Father. It was a time when Greek culture and Greek language would provide a common language for the sharing of the gospel. In fact, it was the perfect language for which the New Testament to be written. It was a time when the Roman Empire was strong, when the Roman roads, as well as the Pax Romana, the Roman peace was in place and made possible the rapid um, a spread of Christianity. It was the time when the world was tired of the pantheon of Greek and, and Roman gods. They had tried these gods and found them terribly lacking, terribly empty. It was a time when the Jews had been under the oppressive nature of the law, the pedagogue, the guardian, the manager. For 1,500 years now, they were, had been appropriately crushed by the law. They were ready for deliverance. It was the fullness of time. It was perfect. So God sent forth His Son. Don't, don't miss that. 
This was a divine plan that was put into motion by the Father. He sent His own Son, which speaks both of Christ's preexistence and His deity. He was the Son of God, equal in essence with the Father. His Sonship was eternal. He's the only begotten Son of the Father, the only and the unique Son, second person of the Trinity, who lived with His Father in glory from eternity past. But when the fullness of time came, he, the Father sent Him, and He came from the very glories of heaven to, well, to hear, to be born of a woman. Now, we know her to be Mary. This speaks of His incarnation, of His emptying Himself, of the full uh, use of His divine attributes, taking on the form, uh, well, of a bondservant, right? He became a slave and, and being made in the likeness of men. It speaks of Him taking on full humanity. He was fully divine and He was fully man, and He was born under the law, which means, of course, that He was born to Jewish parents, uh, just as God had promised to Abraham, through you all the nations of the world will be blessed. But he was also born under the conditions and demands of the law. He was born while the law was the, was the manager. He was born while the law was the guardian. Faith was not yet here in its fullness. And you need to understand that there was one significant difference between this man who was born under the law and the rest of us who were born under the law. Jesus kept it. Perfectly. While fully human, he never broke the law. While fully human, he never sinned. As such, as God, he was the perfect one to represent us to God. And as man, he was the perfect one to represent God to us. And as the perfect God-man, He became then the perfect sacrifice, the perfect substitute for us to take the curse of the law that, 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 was, that, that was against us upon Himself, so that we see that He might redeem those under the law, those of us who were unable to do anything about our condition, those of us who were unable to keep the demands of the law. The law had done its work. We were guilty. All of humanity was guilty, sold into slavery in the market of sin. And Christ appeared to redeem us, to buy us out of the slave market. And I also want to remind you that the cost to purchase us out of that market was very, very high. Paul references back in Galatians chapter 1 when we read that Jesus gave Himself for our sin to deliver us from this present evil age. A couple of weeks ago, we looked at Acts chapter 20, and we, and we read the incredible words of the church that God purchased with His, God purchased with His own blood. See, Paul says that Jesus came at the perfect time. He was born of a woman. We are reminded of this annually, right? We're getting ready. It's Christmas decorations have been out since before Halloween now or actually Reformation Day. We're getting ready to celebrate the birth of this one to come at, at Christmas. Everyone does it because, well, it's sweet. It's a kind of a special story, this little baby born presumably to a virgin, whatever. And it is true that Jesus had to be born. But the purpose of His birth was to die. Christmas means nothing. It's meaningless without Easter. 
You see, Christianity is not ultimately a religion of stable and, and, and manger and straw. It is ultimately a religion of nails and, and wood and, and blood. The incarnation, you see, cannot save us without the crucifixion. Christ did not redeem us by His perfect life alone. He redeemed us through His death. High price. But please notice... Not only does He free us from the slave market, we are actually, and this is the point of the morning, He actually adopts us into the family of God. One said it this way, God's coming had an adopting purpose as well as an atoning purpose. He accomplished our adoption as well as our redemption, which is absolutely amazing. I know we're used to this. I know we've heard this over and over. You probably heard this since you were a little kid in Sunday school. But will you stop and think about this with me for just a moment? Would it not have been enough for Jesus to free us from the slave market, to, to rescue us from captivity to the law and redeem us from the curse? Would that not have been enough? Would, you, would that have not have been enough to make you eternal? thankful, right? But He did not stop there. God sent His Son so that we could actually become sons and daughters of God. We go from slaves to sons and daughters with full privileges. We are no longer minor children with rights of a slave. We are full-fledged children with rights of a mature heir. That's who you are in Christ. We see a hint of this truth at the resurrection. The, the women had come to the tomb to anoint Jesus' body. Of course, He was not there. They ran to tell His disciples, and along the way, Jesus appeared to them. And they fell at His feet to worship. And, and he, he said to them these incredible words, Do not be afraid. Go and take word to my brothers to, to, to leave for Galilee, and there they will see me. Take word to who? Jesus actually called His disciples, His followers, His brothers, because by His death and resurrection, He had brought them, and frankly, He has brought us into a family relationship through adoption, through adoption. My brothers and sisters, you have been adopted into the family of God with full rights of sonship, from slavery to sons and daughters. Some of you need to hear that truth Again, all of us need to hear it regularly and speak this truth into our hearts because the truth is I know that some of you have sinned very well. Maybe even this week. And it is true that we were guilty before a holy God. And some of you can relate very well to condemnation. You condemn yourself every day. You cannot believe the things that you have done. Some of you, while forgiven by the Father, have not forgiven yourselves. And you need to hear the truth that you are a son, that you are a daughter of the living God. He has your adoption papers. He loves you. He forgives you. He has called you to be His own. And He actually wants you to call Him Abba. You see, not only did God send His Son, He also sent His Spirit to live within us. We read here to live in our hearts, the very core of our being. And I want you to notice the, the, the work of the triune God in our salvation. The Father sent His Son. The Son came to die for us. And the Father then sent the Spirit to live within us. How much we are loved. 
It's no wonder with the Spirit living within us that we can cry, Abba. I know that most of us know that that word Abba is an affectionate term um, for father that a child would use of his or her dad. The Spirit actually prompts us, redeemed sinners that we are, to call the God of the universe affectionately Daddy. One said it this way, Abba is the voice of the Spirit of Jesus on the lips of His people. He did not only want us to have the status of sons and daughters. He wanted us to have the experience of sons and daughters. So He sent us His Spirit by whom we cry, Abba. Romans 8 says it this way, For all who are being led by the Spirit of God are sons of God, for you have not received a spirit of slavery, right? You're no longer slaves, leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons and daughters, by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. I want you to listen to me. I want you to speak that marvelous truth to yourself today. God wants you to walk in the fullness of your redemption. God wants you to walk in the fullness of your adoption. It's the reason that He gave you His Spirit, so that you can rest in the assurance of full adoption into the family of God. God is into adoptions. He has adopted you. He has chosen you by the atoning work of Christ on His cross. By grace, through faith, I want to declare to you this morning that you are the children of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this very um, important, very basic, but very important truth this morning, that, that, that we were sinners and there was nothing that we could do about our condition, nothing. People come along all the time trying to tell us there are things that we can do, false religions, false teachers, this is what you can do. We can't do anything. And so you stepped into the pages of history and did it for us. You did that through the person of your son in fulfillment of the promise gave to, given to Abraham. And we thank you. And we thank you for this reminder. We need it regularly. This reminder of what you have done to purchase our redemption. In Christ's name, amen.